With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Blog Talk Radio. Because we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers number one. Yes, we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers number Hello, everyone. You're listening to Balvard Radio. My name is Matt Weston, and tonight I'm joined by the biggest, fattest, and drunkest on the mall, BFD. Hey, dude, how's it going? Hey, I'm not drunk yet, but, you know, by the end of the show, I'm, I'm looking like things will be successful as we talk about the Houston, Texas, are oh, and three! Woo! <laughs> Man, I wish I, I wish I could drink and do the podcast, but I got this, my tongue gets too big in my mouth. I turn to Shan Sharp. And uh, I can barely be understood to begin with. And even if I drink one beer, it doesn't work out. So I'll drink a beet juice along with you probably about 30 minutes into this podcast instead. <laughs> Wait, what is that? You say you drink a beet juice and have to poop 30 minutes in the broadcast? Is that how that kind of no, goes? No, I'll drink a I'll beet juice <laughs> and I'll be uh, drunk with you off nitrates 30 minutes into the show instead. <laughs> oh, God. You're not doing the keto thing too, are you? Uh, may, probably well, I guess not with bees, not really. Probably in January, whenever I stop dreaming for a while again, because I hate January and February. Lock myself in my room and just uh, read books and, I don't know, watch The Sopranos. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's a long ways away. We still have, I guess, three more months until that to happen. But before that happens, something oh, else yeah, the Texan season's already over. So he used to watch 27-22, and it's just exhausting. They're on right now 2.7% of all teams since the 16-game schedule has been enacted to make the playoffs. Uh, the teams that finished 9-7 to make the playoffs, each one of those teams ended up going 10-6. and six. The best record of those teams was some Chargers teams from the 80s that went 11-5 and five one year. So uh, in this division, in this climate, they still have left. They haven't played Jacksonville. They haven't played uh, some of those other separate teams on their schedule. You know, they're it's kind of over unless a miracle happens. So Houston lost this one 27-22. If you could point to one reason, uh, one reason why the Texans lost the game, what would that be? If I were to point to one reason, and Matt, that's just such a loaded question because there's so many reasons. And so, again, I always like to say Matt does a great job prepping prepping for the show and he writes this outline and when I see that if you could point that first question if you can point to one reason why they lost what would it be and I think I've got I can't do one I just can't so we're going to talk about this quite a bit so I'm going to say 1a is Bill O'Brien and I'm going to say 1b is because the New York Giants did exactly what they thought we thought they would in the game and they exploited our slow-ass secondary with a bunch of slants that Kareem Jackson and Zach Cunningham couldn't, uh, couldn't cover Saquon Barkley out of the backfield. And they 
burned us and their elite athletes showed why they're elite and showed why our defensive backs need to be replaced quickly, Matt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think giving up 27 to the points to Giants was, wasn't too much. I think Houston could have eclipsed 27, so I'm, I'm going to blame it on Bill O'Brien, the continued negligence regarding the offensive scheme. And, you know, we talked back in, you know, March or April or so about the comments O'Brien made that he was going to continue to evolve this offense, that they couldn't do the same things that happened last year in fourth count. And I was ecstatic whenever that happened because it was an unsustainable uh, offense last year. Watson had a touchdown rate of 9.3%. So I've been harping on since, you know, this big discovery came to me uh, back in January last year or so. And whenever we had that discussion, you said, well, hopefully it doesn't mean that O'Brien just can go back to his previous offensive scheme that he's been running since he was the head coach of Houston. And I thought there was no way that was possible. I thought he would just expand more upon what already worked instead of just kind of doing things last year. And uh, what you were concerned about ended up being the truth. The Texans are still running the exact same offense that they ran 2014, 2015, 2016, uh, whenever they were, you know, the 30th best offense in football those three years. I think in 2014 they were like 22nd offensive DVA. You know, in uh, 15 and 16, they're about 30th or so. And he went back to what he did before that didn't work. And now the Texans are running this offense that's stagnant. That is probably like – they're probably scoring about you know, 70% of the points they actually should score. And it's all because of the offensive, offensive coordinator, which happens to be the head coach. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to say that, you know, it's this offense and this offense's inability to just do anything correctly at all whatsoever is why they lost this game. Yeah, it it feels like, Matt, it feels like that not only is this horse dead, it's been a puddle, but it's been a puddle for a couple of years. Because, it, I mean, look, look, if you and I, just two guys in our mother's basement who blog about the foosballs, can see this stuff and see it so obvious, then how can the professionals not see this? I mean, even if you're Bill O'Brien, how do you go home at night and say, I did a damn good job, I'm going to do the same thing next week? How do you do that? I mean, if I were to do my job as poorly as Bill O'Brien does his, nobody would ever hire me. I mean, I would be the laughing stock because right now Bill O'Brien is the laughing stock of NFL coaches. Jeff Fisher thinks that Brain O'Brien is a poor head coach. Matt? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> that's a great point because, like, I'm not a football super genius. You're not a football super genius. I think just about everybody who writes about football, you know, probably isn't a football super genius, but still, like, you know, there, it's something hard to, I guess it's something that's this is hard, but, like, you sit there and watch, and if you look at enough numbers, you know, patterns start to emerge. And there are so many things coming into this one that were just, like. Uh-oh, you're gone. You help out on your edges because. Both tackles have struggled mildly. Uh, maybe stop playing Julian Davenport at left ta- at right tackle, where he hasn't shown any ability to play that position at all after playing left tackle his entire career, all of last year, all of preseason, all of training camp, and then just switching him on a whim. Uh, how about you run some sort of route combinations to get your receivers who can't be man coverage open? Uh, why don't you run the zone read because that has worked really well against the Giants this year, especially when they bring Lane Collins in the box to stop the run game. Well, you run over the tackles and get over the edges because they have, you know, their biggest weakness on their defense is their linebackers. So when I put them in one-on-one situations and you know, try to make them miss, uh, 
you know, it just keeps going on and on and on. And they just, it's just really kind of dumbfounding. I, why not use the Sean Watson as a runner at all whatsoever? Because that's what, that's why the offense worked so well last year. Or even why, why not run play action there? I think they were 30th in uh, amount of plays that they ran play action on uh, entering, you know, week three after being such a good play action team last year with Watson as well too. So I, I mean, I really don't know. I understand it. It's all like just, just so stupid and uh, it continues to be stupid. And I think part of it is just kind of like the head coaching culture that's existed for so long where it's super risk averse. You're trying to do the bare minimum to win because if you take a shot and take a risk and lose, it can fall back on you more so than not doing anything at all. And that's what Brian says in our career, just do the bare minimum to win games. And now it's finally caught up to him. And the mirage is over. And, uh, and you know, this is kind of what's happened so far this year. But I don't know. It's, it's all just so very dumb. Yeah, I mean, just go back and look at the, the last game against the DSS. And we were playing for a field goal. I mean, we don't go – this team doesn't go for the throats. They go for, like, a pinprick. And it, it's, it's amazing because that's what he was doing in that uh, – on that drive that failed. I can't remember if it was the third or fourth quarter at this point. But the, with the, the drive with the two screen passes that ended, we went backwards, couldn't, got ourselves out of field goal position, and we had to wind up punting as we usually do, like on the 37-yard line. It, there, there's risk averse, but you don't, you cannot succeed without risk. And mm-hmm. we, we've, this, we've talked about this for several years with Bill O'Brien as well. The dude refuses to accept any risk he thinks is unnecessary. And so we mm-hmm. don't go forward on fourth down. We punt way too often. We play for field goals while the other team plays for touchdowns. And that played out this weekend as we are down 20 to nine because we kicked three dadgum field goals instead of taking a risk. And once again, we're swapping field goals for touchdowns, and that happens a couple times. Well, 20-9 means you're down four freaking field goals. So it's, it's not – Bill O'Brien as a head coach, if, even if we get beyond – even if he had the best offensive scheme in the world, he doesn't. I, what does he do well? He's uber-conservative, punts too often – poor clock management, poor game management, doesn't adjust at halftime. And there are still Bill O'Brien apologists out there. And that's the part I don't get. I still see in the comments section on the blog, Bill O'Brien and the team will be fine. LOL, what? So, Matt, you always ask me, did you know that question, Matt? Here's my did you know question for you. I'm ready. What is it? You're ready? You're you're ready. What is – Deshaun Watson's record as a starter under Bill O'Brien for your Houston Texans? I'm going to go with three and six. You are dead on correct, sir. Deshaun Watson, as gifted as he is, is three and six as a starter under Deshaun Watson. And we've been led to believe, Matt, that Brain O'Brien equals love forever. The mm-hmm. Texans have won one game in their last 13 games, Big Matt. One game. We beat Blaine Gabbert-led Arizona Cardinals in week 11 last year. We have lost every other game since week eight of the 2017 season. We are 1-13 during that span. How is Bill O'Brien not to blame for this? A lot of it's Rick Smith. A lot of it's Rick Smith. But how do you not blame Bill O'Brien for this, Matt? Yeah, and I mean, you, you have to at this point now because he won the power struggle. 
he was you know he was able to use him as a scapegoat like how he used God to use a scapegoat in the past like how he used the other quarterbacks previously as a scapegoat all of which have done you know Fitzpatrick did better outside of Houston uh, I guess you really can't say that for Hoyer or Mallet but uh, have you seen other players you know, who've gotten better since they've left Houston players who've come to Houston become even worse as well too so I think that whole kind of question they answered about you know, anything regarding is this Rick Smith's fault, O'Brien's fault. Um, it seems pretty obvious that it's O'Brien's fault now. And I think the one thing about his conservative nature, like it, it worked and it had to – I think it's the only way like you could kind of win games in your quarterback is, you know, Brian Hoyer or Ryan Mallett or name redacted or whoever, you know, is the 32nd worst quarterback in football at the time and you have a top 10 defense. It's just what you have to do to scrape through and even, you know, win a bunch of close games. But when you have Deshaun Watson, that's not what needs to happen at all anymore. It's not like a, a luxury to, to throw touchdown passes anymore. It's what you should just always be doing. And now you're looking at teams like, you know, the Rams, where they had 500 yards of total offense while being up, you know, two touchdowns from the entire game against the Chargers, they never let up. You have the Chiefs are scoring 38 points a game. O'Brien isn't doing that. And you've seen some, how much success other coaches have with young quarterbacks. And also how many points they score, how many points they keep going and keep pushing and putting out there. And O'Brien hasn't done that all whatsoever. He's just trying to do the bit, like his, he's trying to win in the safest way possible continuously. And it's not working and it's not you know, going to change really at all. I can't, I, I mean, I can't see it really changing at all either. No, because you're seriously asking the tiger to change his, his stripes and, and or maybe in this case, the tiger to change his spots. Because what is going to what is he going to do differently? He's not all of a sudden going to wake up one day and go, you know what, I'm going to salt and pepper my eggs. He's not going to do that. Like those are too spicy for him. So it's <laughs> it's time to go out. It's time to find. It's been time. I made that argument last year that it was already time to go do that. It's now it's beyond time. Because if you look at the context of this, and the one that we like to pick on the most, Matt, and just to reiterate it, because I'm going to keep beating multiple dead horse at the dead horse at the dead horse, because what else are we going to do? We've been beating them for five years under Bill O'Brien. But we've pissed away J.J. Watt, another season of him, and J.J. Watt is playing some bad football right now. He is one bad dude. I am so glad I do not play right tackle in the National Football League and having to face J.J. Watt. And we're wasting it again. Yeah. And so yeah. it's it that's the most frustrating part for me, Matt. Yeah. And that and that my I think I probably may have talked about this last week, I can't remember, but that was my feelings of Brian during this year was that, you know, one, I don't I don't like him mainly because of two thousand fourteen and I still can't give the fact that like they consciously went in two thousand fourteen with Ryan Fitzpatrick as the quarterback, considering that it was a, it wasn't a two and fourteen team that wasn't talented as a two and fourteen whose quarterback uh, completely lost his arm. He lost a ton of close games that had the you know, best defensive player in football uh, and a lot of talent on that roster, good offensive line, good running attack. And the biggest difference was the quarterback. And I still couldn't believe that they punted on 2014 like they did. And then all the consistent issues of the quarterback position from there where you, like you said, like they wasted J.J. Watt's prime. They wasted, you know, three of the greatest defensive seasons you're ever going to see from any player. And I think you'll kind of ever see in a way and especially with the way quarterbacks are being treated now. And then also during that entire time, there was such of like a, an arrogance about him that he had that, you know, just, he was just rude. He had that vibe that he knew what he was doing, that he was smarter than you, but he isn't at all. And he just con- constantly keeps making the same dumb decisions, the same dumb mistakes. 
and uh, it keeps trying to force his own way of football, try to you know skate skate his way past through games and win games, uh, in like the like I said, the safest way possible. And I think one of the the kind of the best way I, for me to describe the Bill O'Brien era was in this game specifically. It was second and ten. He challenged an eight yard catch that made a third and two that the receiver looked like he caught completely. And even if he didn't, you're not going to get much reward out of of getting you know. Uh, saving eight yards in the second quarter, and the Giants are only about like the 35-yard line or so. So they lose the timeout to lose that challenge. Then going into the at the end of the half, the Texans are driving to try to score. They run out of time, of course, have to kick a field goal. And the biggest reason why they ran out of time is because they lost the timeout because of that stupid challenge earlier in the game. And then later in the game, Saquon Barkley catches a, a pass that looks like he, he it looked like he bobbled it. Aaron Colvin definitely thought he bobbled it. Uh, look at the ball was kind of moving as he went down. Rather than he called a timeout to stop the clock, I know he was trying to coax a challenge or if he was just calling timeout, but why not just throw your challenge flag there? You're not going to do anything with your challenge flag here in 12 seconds because the two-minute warning is about to happen. And then also, if you lose a challenge, all you're going to lose is a timeout, and you're going to call that timeout anyways. And, of course, they don't, and the Giants have scoring a touchdown right there to go to put 27 points on the board to make a two-position game, and it's over. And it's even like those aspects where he's trying to call an offense and he's trying to do something that he couldn't even do whenever he wasn't calling an offense. And he's super spread apart in that way as well because it's that continued arrogance that he can do everything, that he's a, you know, super smart, that he's better than you, and that whole aura gives off. And it's not true. It's the farthest thing from the truth. But uh, that was that was one one of the, you know, even everything else we, met, we listed earlier about why Houston lost, I think that kind of is just something that's so simple and so easy to do. And uh, it's the same type of mistake he's he's also continued to make as he was a head coach as well. I got one more. Did you know, Matt? Actually, this is you have to guess this one. I'm sorry, I'm going to be cruel. So the Texans have gone, as I said, one in twelve. We've got one freaking win in our last thirteen games. How many of those games, Matt, were one possession games? That they lost. That they well, yeah, we didn't win any of them. Yeah, yeah. So in the last, so in all his losses, I'm guessing, I know they've lost all three of their games to start the year were one possession losses, and I feel like they lost six last year. So I'm gonna say uh, nine. So out of the last thirteen, six have been one possession losses. Gotcha. So do you remember back when? Do you remember back in those halcyon days that you and I talked about how freaking lucky the Texans were on one possession games? Yeah. And what's happened now? So not only had not only was he lucky, Bill O'Brien lucky, the Texans lucky for uh, it was about a season and a half. We were really lucky on one possession games, but the rubber band when you stretch the rubber band out, it has a tendency to snap back. We call that regression to the mean, and that's exactly what's happened. The one possession wins were not sustainable, and the rubber band has snapped back with a vengeance, right back on Bill O'Brien's thumb. Six one possession losses out of the last thirteen games. That's mm-hmm. pretty snappy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that was in 2017, especially so when they won a, a ton, or 2016, especially when they won a ton of close games. So then they were kind of average in 2015, but 2016 especially so. And I know a lot of people kind of at the time I, I've done arguments and try to tell people that you know these things kind of tend to balance out. Now I was constantly told that. No, it's, this is an example of why Bill O'Brien's a good head coach because he's able to win these close games, and, uh, and that's not how it works. You know, it's never worked like that for any head coach out there. 
the good head coaches are the ones who win by two touchdowns and three touchdowns. Yeah, it's kind of funny. All the all the shies that we've said over the past couple of years about why Bill O'Brien is possibly not a good coach, and and it's evolved into well, for me, it evolved quickly into that he's not a good coach at all. And you you've kind of come around to that point too. Not saying you're wrong to have that opinion, whatever. But it's it's pretty funny how the arguments we made for why he wasn't a, a good head coach have all borne out to be true. And I, I remember those, those seeing those arguments. No, that's sustainable. That's absolutely sustainable because Bill O'Brien is an above-average head coach. If you look back over the course of baseball history, football history, that is, there is no credence to that at all. None. Mm-hmm. This, this stuff balances out, Big Matt. Yeah, I think my favorite thing I said about it was that I think I said the 2000 – everybody's expecting the 2000 – Six, 2017 Rangers to lose a bunch of one-score games after they won a 10 2016, but no one's expecting the same thing for the Houston Texans, and it's entirely because this is your team and your boys and your guys, and be, that makes it special compared to others. Um, I will say this about Brian, though, is I did think that he should have been kept on for another year this year. I would, you know, we talked about this as well this summer that I would never have extended him because if he did a good job, you have to pay him a little bit more money. So what? But he's going to stay. He has a bad job. You're not having to waste all of your own money and release many ways from a contract that you're forced to pay uh, continuously. And he hasn't shown anything really that he's done over the previous four years to you know, keep him for five years uh, down the line. But he had such a good you know, six-game offensive stretch with Watson. I guess five really because that Cincinnati game really wasn't that great. Watson just made one big run. The defense was very good. But in the five-game stretch, you know, Watson was spectacular, and he switched the offensive scheme around. Uh, offense that you know, worked to to Watson's strengths completely, and so because of that, uh, well, hey, you know, that worked out really well. And Watson is healthy. That's the most important part of this team is having a really good quarterback, especially a young quarterback. Let's keep it together for another year, see how it goes. If it's bad, you can move on. If it's good, you can keep them. And uh, it turned out that it's bad, and they could move on. And now they're probably going to move on, but you know, here sometime this year. Uh, but now it's going to cost you know, McNair time money, which I guess doesn't matter really at all. I'm kind of glad he lost a bunch of money on it, making it that dumb of a decision. But, uh, you know, everything that happened last year, the five-game sample size, and why this offense works so well, they're not doing. And it is the most frustrating thing for me watching this team and watching this offense is that everything that they, that they know works and has worked, they're just not doing. I talked about, you know, using Watson as a runner to set the play action and throw down field. Uh, even running like meaningful play fakes, their play fakes don't mean anything at all whatsoever. Uh, using Watson as a runner on the zone replays, actually running like a jet sweep where you can actually pick up yards and use that to fake other things, running at the ball outside the tackles. And I know like running route combinations between Will Fuller and DeAndre Hopkins, like even that's a great idea. It took me until like two minutes left in the third quarter for that to happen. And then all the issues with tackles and doing things to help them out too. So, I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling me the fact that, like, he had, he had that success and he had that success doing that and then for him to go back to his old ways because he thinks Watson should be more of a pocket passer. I don't know. And the only reason I can think of is if it's for preservation's sake, so if they're worried about his knee not being 100% there. And that I can understand, you know, potentially. But, like, you still, like, at 0-2, like, you have to go for it, you know. This game is too important to, to lose and not, uh, not go out and get, especially with your roster healthy the way it is as well, too, so – I don't know. It's all very stupid. It's all very frustrating. It sucks. It sucks that, you know, we as fans and uh, people who care about this team and like the game had to wait a year 
for this to happen. Now that it's happened, it's already been wasted. And that the rest of the season, and if you're find you in the Texans winning football games, uh, it's not going to be there and it doesn't exist already. And it only took three weeks for that to happen. Right. Well, at this point, uh, I feel like I'm Frank Bush and that I've completely blown up Gary Kubiak's strip by my, uh, script by my uh, defense giving up a lot of points. So if you want to hop back on script after my rant, <laughs> let's, uh, no, it's, let's do it's that. It's all good. Sometimes it happens. Uh, I, and I feel like that was a lot of, you know, you know, we try to have fun on the show. We try to, you know, have a good time and, uh, and you talk about uh, the enjoyable parts of the game rather than, you know, kind of this sort of talk. And this just kind of happens though, whenever you're in such a, such an awful situation and seen such awful football for the past, you know, three weeks. But um, is there anything that you've really enjoyed you know, about this game? Is there anything that you, you've enjoyed about this team? Uh, what was something that you liked from this game before we start talking about kind of more the in-depth analysis again? I think there's two big things. And the first big thing, and not the biggest thing, I'm starting with the number two first, is watching Will Fuller play football and be healthy is a lot of fun. Of course, that was kind of the, the knock on him coming out. If he has the chicken legs, he's not really built for NFL football. A lot of guys aren't and are successful. I mean, you can you can see that. You know, not everybody can be freaking Darren Sproles, right? So there was a lot of questions if he was going to stay healthy. He missed the first game of the season. But watching Will Fuller play football is really, really fun because he's just too fast. He's like – he's your 99-speed guy on Madden who is just going to – beat everybody to every corner and it's it's a lot of fun watching him play the football and he's not dropping everything so that's also nice yeah i am but how how do you not love jj watt i mean how do you just not man crush on watching jj watt he was he was absolutely invisible that first quarter in the first game and since then he's been pretty vengeful big matt (laughs) yeah yeah, I think those are kind of like the two, really the only two things that have been enjoyable. Because, uh, like, Hopkins is still great, but he's being bracketed on every play. So they're covering the safety on top, and they're playing man underneath, and they're playing really physical man coverage as well, too. And they're not also, like, they're not even giving him the chance to make those, tra- those catches in traffic he's made his entire career. Like, whenever they're playing press man, they smart over the top, they're just ignoring him, which is kind of frustrating as well, because he can still make those, like, 12-yard first down catches and stuff, and they're just kind of ignoring it. But, uh, yeah, like Fuller, like in man coverage, if you play off man, he's going to run you, you know, 10 yards on the field and then stop and just wait for, like, a nice, easy 12-yard catch. And he's just going to do that over and over again. And then when you climb up, he's going to run right by you. And whenever you're double covering, you know, Hopkins on the other sideline, you have your safety in the middle of the field, and you just get man coverage. And it's pretty much, like, impossible to beat uh, or impossible to stop unless you're able to get, like, a really good press line scrimmage like, Malcolm Butler did on that uh, big stop he had on third down on that fade route that was pretty much the same route they threw a touchdown on earlier in the game. And and then the second thing has to be, you know, Watt. Uh, Watt in this game, he had eight tackles, three sacks, four tackles for loss, and four quarterback hits. And he was the only plus player on the defense. During this game, too, he was the only player on the defense with more than one pressure. Mercis hasn't had a pressure yet. Clowney only had one pressure entering this game. And he's been the entire source of the pass rush as well, too. And so to finally get, like, another vintage Watt game, this is the type of game from Watt we saw in 2014, 2015, you know, 2013, whenever he was carrying the team all on his own. Uh, it was so awesome to see, like, to go back in that time machine and have it be here and actually, like, watch him completely dominate another game again. 
Yeah, the only thing that I've got a lot to say to what you have said, but I want to go back to Watt because he has been so much fun. But the one thing I know, the Giants were chipping him some, but they were leaving like Rhett Ellison one-on-one on him and Wheeler, the right tackle, one-on-one on him. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to see that anymore. If, if, if Merciless and Clowney aren't making any noise at all, and <laughs> let's be let's be honest here, they aren't, uh, I think J.J. Watt's going to get a lot more com- uh, company on the field these days. But watching him just – the inside move for the sack where he basically threw the right tackle, it was Wheeler, down, and took him out and then cut inside, threw the right tackle down, was just, man, that was like 2013 man crush J.J. Watt time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the the tackle, the five-yard tackle for a loss in Barkley where he just you know takes that one step to the right, watches the tackle, just kind of stands still yeah. in the way. It's like Tom throws and watches the tackle, you know, try to reach his outside shoulder. And then jam and swims back over and then just suffocate you the back. And uh, that's like, man, like that one-on-one, just like five-yard run loss is just, it's even, it's even better than a sack, I think, in a way, because you're still getting the same negative amount of yards, but you're doing it in a way that like you never see, and you never see five yards lost on a running play, like a dive play like that. And it just takes so much skill to be able to pull that off. Um, Yeah. Like, I mean, he's been so much fun. I'm super excited to watch the film tomorrow to try to write something on, on Thursday or Friday about his game this week because I'm going to work on a film room on. And, you know, I can't wait to actually sit down and do it. Yeah, and, and let's talk about Deshaun Watson and DeAndre Hopkins for just a moment too because I think that's important. One thing that you kind of – I pick up, and, and I'm, I'm spitballing this here. One thing I pick up about Deshaun Watson is he has a tendency to really want his receivers to run themselves open. Yeah. Um for right or wrong, and DeAndre, DeAndre Hopkins is not that kind of wide receiver. He's a guy who catches the challenge balls. He's, he's the hand clamp guy. He's going to catch the ball on the sideline. He's going to beat his guy one-on-one, but he's not going to create a ton of separation normally. He's no Will Fuller. He's more of a Larry Fitzgerald kind of guy. Do you kind of get that sense from Deshaun Watson, and that's part of the reason that we're not beating DeAndre Hopkins, even if he's being bracketed? Uh, Fitzpatrick, Hoyer, uh, Hopkins was being bracketed when those guys are quarterback too, but they're willing to feed DeAndre Hopkins the ball, Matt. Yeah, I I don't know because like the weird thing is Watson has really good ball placement. Like he can put the ball. It'd be even better for him to throw traffic throws than you know Hoyer and Fitzpatrick and you know name redact and those guys because he can actually like put the ball in the best spot for it to go. Like that that almost touchdown of Will Fuller that just took Fuller just mm-hmm. barely out bounds. He can get that second footed. But that's a spectacular, that's a spectacular pass. Like that's a kind of like a, Oh my God throw, you know? And so he has the, the ball placement to do it. I wonder how much of it is also just like coaching and O'Brien, you know, telling him like, you know, don't take risks don't take too many chances. You know, there's no reason to four speed it whenever you have four on this sideline and that sort of thing. Um, so I haven't picked up that part of it. I think next time I watch actual like coaches film of it, I'll keep that in mind as I watch kind of watch them play, but yeah, they're not really, they're they're not going at Hopkins even whenever he's in like one on one man coverage and Stephen Gilmore because they'd rather go to other matchups as well. I think that's also kind of the frustrating things too. Uh, that New England game they put Hopkins in the slot to try him away from Stephen Gilmore. He's twice as good as Stephen Gilmore is. He's gonna get open. He's gonna make the catch over him. Just throw it to him, you know. And I think they're kind of overthinking that this Hopkins thing to start the season as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I just there, there has to be some something there and I'm trying to figure out what that something is because it's driving me up the freaking wall. 
Yeah. And, I mean, Hopkins still had, like, I think eight catches for, like, nine, two yards this game, but he hasn't had the type of, like, superhuman game. He hasn't made, like, a great catch so far this year. And that's kind of a strange thing about because usually by this time this year, you know, there's some, like, insane one-handed catch or some, you know, crazy post-play uh, post where he – where he boxes off the defender, grabs the rebound, and slams it back home, you know. Like, that's just been missing this year. There hasn't been, like, even, like, a definitive Hopkins play yet. Great points. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. That's fantastic points. The other thing, I guess, on the offense, let's talk about the offensive line because they made some moves today. One is that Dylan Cole's on the IR. Two is Bruce Ellington's on the IR. So, it probably means that Kike Cote is going to actually play, which is, you know, good news the team needs. Semi can another player can run downfield, another player can potentially beat man coverage as well. And then the other thing they did as well is they moved their I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Uh, they moved the offensive tackle from the practice squad up to regular roster. So in case Davenport has a bad game or Rankin has a bad game, uh, they can quickly switch. In this one, Davenport had he gave up five hurries, a sack, and then he had four penalties. He had a Jeff Allen number of three small starts. And then he had a holding penalty as well that negated a touchdown that Houston ended up scoring a touchdown on anyways. And then Martinez Rankin was credited with eight uh, hurries in this one. And watching it live, like, I thought Rankin was fine the first half, I think especially because I could watch him, you know, playing on the left side. And, uh, the, and then the second half, guys stopped trying to go around him on the edge. Like, other teams have been beating him. Like, Tennessee just went, just edge rushed Rankin and Davenport over and over again. And, you know, Rankin was, I think, really kind of sitting on those edge rushes, trying to get out of his stance quick, really hurrying over there to, to meet the edge rush. And I think he started playing higher and that sort of thing because in the second half, they were just bull rushing. They both, both against him and Davenport, they were just bull rushing him and going through him and able to create pressure like that. And uh, there wasn't as many edge rushes as there has been the previous two weeks. And that kind of switched in that second half. And so in this week, it seems like they're going to go with them at left and right tackle still and they're going to have this backup tackle things are really bad again. And I think it's kind of the move that you have to make. You either switch him and put Davenport in a place where he's comfortable because he's, he's, he's comfortable at left tackle. He was better at left tackle last year than he's been at right tackle this year. He was a passable left tackle last year. He played left tackle at training camp all preseason. He switched to right, and now he's completely falling apart. And you either switch him and you hope that works out, or you just can't play Davenport at all anymore because he's unplayable at this point. And it sucks. And, you know, he looked like a potential starting left tackle uh, in the league. He looked like he got a lot stronger this summer. And he's been an absolute disaster so far this year. And it really breaks my heart. I'm really upset about it. And the other thing that sucks, too, it's like Houston's not doing anything to help out either tackles. They're not chipping. They're playing Ryan Griffin a ton. He played 76% of the snaps. And I believe Jordan Thomas only played – I can look it up exactly. Jordan Thomas only played 22% of the snaps. Aikens only played 37%. Brian Griffin played 76%. So you're putting a worse blocker with those guys too, which doesn't help them out. You're not chipping a whole lot. You're not running enough bootlegs. You're not running play action. You're not changing the games for the pass rushers. They're just kind of going on one once the center lifts his head, and, uh, and they have to try to beat their guy from there one-on-one from there. And it hasn't worked, and it, and it sucks. These guys are in the deep, and they're drowning, and the coaching is not doing anything that will help them whatsoever. And uh, even sucks more because these are like talented players. So these are guys who can be pat, who could be you know starting tackles in this league. And Houston's just absolutely ruining them right now. And uh, as somebody who has really enjoyed watching both these players heading into this year, like I've just been kind of devastated. Like my feelings are hurt watching them play. And uh, the whole thing just sucks so much. 
Yeah, and I want to take a moment out because I, I've been really interested in watching the quote-unquote battle at tight end. And I just want to put this in perspective. Uh, perspective is always important for me. Ryan Griffin had 10 targets and three receptions for 63 yards. Jordan Thomas, seven targets, three receptions for 80 yards. And Jordan Aikens, five targets, five receptions for 50 yards. Ryan Griffin is the worst blocking tight end of that trio. Uh, I, I don't know why tight end I've seen who blocks as much as he does. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I just don't, he's not, so he's neither effective as a blocker nor as a pass catcher. So this goes back to once again, why the hell is dude on the field? Right? He's the least effective receiver of that group. He's the least effective blocker. I get the other two are rookies, but it does not matter if you're the worst. So why is Ryan Griffin seeing snaps at this point? Yeah, I think it's kind of like the Garrett, like he's the same player as Garrett Graham, except for whatever reason they've held on to Ryan Griffin. You know, they sent Graham that year for like three years, $10 million. They cut him like four weeks into the year because he was terrible. And Griffin has been able to hang around and hang around and hang around. I understand it. Like he catches like open, he catches seam passes when he's wide open, nobody's covering him. But constantly he's not able to beat man coverage. And one of the other things I've noticed too, you know, kind of talking about the offensive line, uh, as well as that, like Watson's holding on to the ball forever as well. And there's not like pick and pop passes. There's nothing super easy happening. Everything's really difficult while holding lane for my B-man coverage and usually it doesn't happen. And now all of a sudden he's scrambling and now the offensive line looks a lot worse than it is because you can't block for, you know, five seconds consistently. And I know they're having trouble like blocking for two seconds at times and you know, Watson can you know, destroy it immediately. But like even then, even when the pass blocking is good, like nothing's open. And Watson's just searching and looking and looking and looking. And, uh, and like, one way to help that is by getting open in the middle of the field. And also when pressure is bad, you want open passes in the middle of the field because it's a shorter path over there. And you want guys to meet man coverage. And both Aikens and Thomas are better being man coverage than Griffin has. And Griffin's never been able to really do it all very well. And uh, just another one of those things is just, like, just very dumb. It doesn't make any sense. And I really don't get it at all. Yeah, so I wanted, really wanted to bring up that tight end situation, too. And it's really because, and I got to just be admit it, you know, fair disclosure and all that, Huggy and I have a bet on Ryan Griffin, and I think that Ryan Griffin's going to have, not going to lead the tight ends and catches because he does not even deserve to be seeing the field at all. So there you go, yeah. fair disclosure. Yeah, he has, what, three right now, I guess, on, on seven targets. I think, I think even entering – Last week, I think he only had one catch in this game, so I think he was only at two for six. And I think he was even at one for six at one point to start this year as well, whenever I was looking at the numbers, uh, I think a week or two ago. So, I mean, it's been bad. Yeah. And it's not like this is something new either. No, and he's the worst on the team. I mean, he's three for ten on target. I mean, 30%. You know, I, I could throw <laughs> – I could go out there and catch 30% of my targets. Actually, I had good hands back in the day. But I mean, that's that's trash. I mean, that's that's straight trash to have that low of a target rate, or, uh, target and catch rate. Yeah, and and also like the middle of the field is wide open too. When you have Fuller on one sideline, you have Hopkins on the other sideline. So much attention drawn to the sidelines. Like it should be easy for Griffin and the Jordan rookies, and for whoever the slot receiver is going to be, it should be easy for them to get open in the middle of the field, and uh, and they're not doing it all. 
And also, like, it doesn't help that O'Brien doesn't scheme the game body open. He doesn't create any open throws whatsoever. Um, and again, like, I, I didn't see a one-route combination between Fuller and DeAndre Hopkins until 2.20 left in the third quarter. And that's completely unacceptable. And when they ran it, Hopkins, Fuller got wide open on a slant route and had, like, a 20-yard reception off of it. And, uh, and it's just, like, it's not, like, super complicated things that you have to do or, like, situations, you know, to put yourself in advantages. And, and, and it's even, like, a secondary that's missing, like, Eli Apple, who played pretty well entering this year, too. Like, the Giants don't have a good secondary. And still, even then, like, it's, it's not clicking with them, too. Yeah. Uh, I get, I don't know. I don't have a whole lot to say about the offense anymore. The one thing I wanted though to bring up was the defensive secondary and I guess the pass rush too, because Manning completed 25 of his 29 passes this game. Uh, that comes out to a completion percentage of 86%. And Manning's been bad to start this year. The pass rush has killed him. He's been inaccurate. He's thrown plenty of interceptions. Uh, he also threw 297 yards and two touchdowns. The Giants passing offense so far this year has primarily been Manny's either pressured or he doesn't throw the ball downfield and just dumps it off to Saquon Barkley for like four yards to catch. And this game, he had like a, a super effective one. And it seemed like Romeo Cornell was kind of no man situation because he can either play man coverage and get beat and give up like a 15 yard gain and the pass rush doesn't get there in time, or he can play soft zone coverage and the ball is out quickly. He gets beat for you know eight yards and the pass rush doesn't have a chance to get there. So, like, if you're Cornell, what changes would you make, uh, you know, to try to help this out? Or do you think there's just, like, not a lot he can do unless Clowney and Merciless and Watt are all being their pass blocks one-on-one? It, I thought about this question. I thought about this a lot because we predicted what would happen, didn't we? I mean, we flat out said if they can do this with their guys and get them – because the pass rush isn't doing it. And it how do you take – you know, sorry for the Tyron Matthew fanboys. And good reason. He used to be a really good football player. He's looked good at times this year. But if your cornerbacks are Jonathan Joseph and Kareem Jackson, either of whom can keep up with anybody who runs four or five or faster at this point, if your safeties are um, Matthew and – oh, my gosh, I'm blanking. Not Andre. Uh, Reed. Reed. Yeah, okay, yeah. And <laughs> – the only guy who's got long speed back there is Aaron Colvin, and even his long speed is not great. We don't have a lot of good short quickness guys back there either. So you saw Beckham just running past Kareem Jackson, and Kareem Jackson's just flailing. But what do you do? If you put them on press, they're going to get blown off the line, play them soft, they're going to get beat after two seconds. If our pass rush isn't there, that's not going to happen either. And we have to look at this realistic, realistically. The saying is the pass rush – can negate your poor defensive back play. That is not true. It can help it by getting there. But the only guy getting there is J.J. Watt right now. You're really doomed. But those two units work as a symbiotic group. And it doesn't matter. You could put J.J. Watt, Kevin Green, Mean Joe Green, and I'm just going to go old school, Corley Cole on the, off, on the defensive line, and to try to get to the quarterback – against those corner or to the quarterback and against those cornerbacks are trying to throw out there. If they've got any speed at all, the wide receivers, they're going to get open and get open quickly. And mm-hmm. Zach Cunningham was straight up an embarrassment on Sunday that there is a reason teams are really going after Zach Cunningham. So there's a lot of Sisyphean efforts going on by our defense right now 
especially by guys like J.J. Watt, because if you look at the rest of that squad, it's 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 uh, uh, it's hot garbage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like even the pass distribution of this game is hilarious because Barkley caught five catches on five targets for 35 yards. You know, longer 21. Odell Buckham Jr. caught nine catches on 10 targets for 109 yards. Sterling Shepard caught six catches on seven targets for 80 yards. And Rhett Ellison caught three catches or had three catches on three targets for 33 yards. So, like, all these guys were getting open. They were all catching their passes. Nobody was influencing the catch. Uh, and, like, there was just nothing there. And so, like, entering this, this season, my biggest thing was that the pass rush has to be healthy. If the pass rush is healthy, the defense can be good. And the Texans will only need to score, you know, 24 points, 27 points to win games, which I think they could could have entered this year. And they have kind of to a point. I just didn't think they were going to be able to score, you know, 34 points a game or so like they did last year, namely because of the Sean Watson touchdown, right? And I just assumed the pass rush was going to be good. Like, I thought, like, you know, if the guys were healthy, it was going to be really good, and that wouldn't be a concern at all. And this year, that's not what has happened. And that's been the biggest surprise to me. Like, I could see the O'Brien thing happening because he's done it plenty of times before. But for a pass rush with Merciless healthy, with Clowney healthy, with Watt healthy, with, you know, McKinney's ability to blitz his ball too. Uh, I I really had, did not see this coming out whatsoever that both Clowney and Merciless would be as bad as they've, had, they've been because they've been completely non-existent. And without that pass rush cranking, like the secondary is just, it's just a bad secondary. They don't have enough talent on it. They're old. They're slow. And um, there's like really not a whole lot that they can do at all whatsoever defensively. And, with that, and then with you know giving up 27 points and having the offensive scheme stuff you have going on, and the lack of blocking, the penalties, it's just been a complete like you know wreck whatsoever. Uh, do you think Merciless and Clowney are going to play any better this year? And like, have you seen things specifically that they're struggling with? Well, Clowney's got to be on the field for every game and not getting penalties in uh, civvies. I. I, I <laughs> Matt, I got to say, I have not seen any reason to be optimistic about Clowney or Merciless at all this year. I mean, like, no reason. They're both getting stood up one-on-one. Merciless has always had this problem. And he, he had a couple years, he had, you know, he had a couple years where he got a lot of garbage sacks. But he has always, since he's been in the NFL, has had a hard time with one-on-one blocks. He's just flat out no longer beating them. He's not even getting the outliers of them. He's not even getting the garbage, J.J. Watt's garbage anymore. Clowney just, just not, does not look like the same guy we saw occasionally the first couple of years. By the way, let's just go for the, on the record and say that Khalil Mack is a hell of a lot better of a football player than uh, Clowney is. Can we, can we just put that little argument to rest for once and for all? Because if you're still arguing for Clowney, you're being ridiculous. Um, but I, I, there's no reason to be optimistic for, for these guys at this point. They've got to do something. Merciless has got to show something. Clowney's got to show something. They didn't do it against the freaking Giants, Matt. I don't know when they're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and also, like, I know – I mean, I think it's going to get better because Merciless, like, he had his best year in 2016, whenever Walt went down. Like, he was legitimately being tackled on the edge one one with rip moves. Clowney was creating pressures. He wasn't having the sacks, but he was still – one of the best edge to edge run defenders in football. And I feel like last year he was the best run stopping defensive end in football last year without Watt there. And this year, like, I mean, they haven't done anything at all whatsoever. And I, I think part of it maybe has to do with this training camp. You know, Merciless had that hamstring injury. He didn't play a lot whatsoever. Clowney had that surgery and they brought him back really slowly this summer. 
And so I think maybe they're having to play themselves back into football shape and, like, get used to being on the field. Uh, and that's really the only thing I could think of because, you know, like, the talent's still there. Like, this is still, like, really, you know, good talent. These are still guys who are really good players. But they're getting blocked by, you know, Nate Solder, and they're getting blocked by Hernandez. And they, even they were getting blocked by Wheeler. And they're going against the offensive line that's been, you know, bad to start the year as well, too. Uh, and the other thing about this game is Cornell did blitz. Like, he was blitzing the safeties predominantly blitz, and they weren't getting there as well either. The Giants are picking up blitzes, some they haven't been able to do against Jacksonville or against Dallas even. And uh, his blitzes weren't working as well. So, I mean, he has to do something, whether it's – I think he should play Edgy over on the edge. He should try to get Wall and Clowney maybe rushing a little bit closer unless there's some, like, really good one-on-one matchup Clowney can take advantage of and then put Merciless maybe on the other edge so that way Clowney and Wall have shorter pass to the quarterback. Uh, and then whenever blitzing, like, get McKinney in some blitzes, put, you know, Clowney and Merciless over the center and get some of those interior blitzes as well too because they're not getting any pressure at all by putting, you know, Covington and Blackson and Dunn and, uh, you know, Reader on the inside rushing on third downs. It's not working all on the inside. And uh, it's just making, you know, that much easier to step up from that exterior pressure and that sort of thing as well, too. So there's things that they can do to be better. I think Clowney and Merciless will get better. But it's just been, like, non-existent. I think they were 30th in pressure rate entering this week. And it will be hard because Watt was spectacular on his own. But overall, the pass rush has just been, you know, putrid and, you know, non-existent. Yeah, and I would just like to talk uh, for a moment about the, the personnel problem. We talked about it last week. Why is uh, Clowney on the outside? Why isn't he playing defensive end in the 3-4 base set? Why isn't yeah. he inside? Why isn't Watt inside on, on sub packages? Why the hell are Dunn and Blackson and those kind of guys getting so many snaps? They should not, right? We should be seeing out there on a on our base package, we should be seeing a front three of uh, Watt excuse me, and Clowney, we should be seeing Merciless and EGO4 on the outside and Cunningham and McKinney on the inside. That's what we should be seeing from our front seven. Instead, we're seeing a lot of Covington and Dunn in there at the same time. Look, we're not even playing our best guys. We're not bringing our best guys to the fight. And it's on sub packages, seeing those guys out there is, a, is just an atrocity. And J.J. Watt, love the guy he destroyed the right tackle this past week. We've talked often about how he's still much more effective on the inside. Why isn't he shooting the A and B gap? I, I just uh, – sometimes it's perplexing. I understood why Vrabel did it because Vrabel didn't know what the hell he was doing. And the reason that Cornell started blitzing on Sunday, and because we hadn't been doing a whole lot of blitzing until Sunday, but the reason is everybody could see that, that it was like one on six to get to the quarterback. And mm-hmm. so he had to start blitzing. He had to start doing something different. And I, I would not doubt if we see a lot more blitzing this week just because we got to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, talking about the why at the defensive end spot in this game, I want to see him rush from the defensive end spot when those matchup advantages are there. Like, there's no reason to give Clowney that matchup advantage when he hasn't shown his – he's, like, he's been a fine at creating pressure, but he has some of the pass rush moves that Watt has. You take advantage of a guy like Wheeler. Like, you're just matching athleticism versus athleticism, which you win, but you can't get there as quick when you're constantly trying to run through and around guys rather than, uh, you know, get by them in a quicker fashion like Watt can. So whenever you get Wheeler out there, right tackle, put Watt on him, and then kind of sort everything else from there. But if you're in a situation where you have two, you know, pretty good booking tackles, uh, there's no reason to keep Watt on the outside. Move him inside, 
get Merciless and Edgy over one-on-one matchups, give Juan Clowney having to deal with the center and guard at the same time. And then, and then that will even open up your, your blitzes as well too. So uh, I know Edgy from will play nine snaps. You should play a lot more than that. I really want to see Clowney move back to defensive end too. He was so good defensive end last year. Like why make him play stand up because of the idea that you need to fill in these spots or whatever, just get your best guys out there and then kind of go from there. And I really would like to see Clowney playing defensive end because he looked a lot more comfortable there last year than, and even in 2016 as well too, and Watt got hurt. Uh, than he has ever playing standing up at all. Hey, Big Matt, I got a question for you, man. Yeah. Have you – no, I'm going to rephrase this. Rushing the quarterback, what is J.J. Watt's best move? That is – well, it's either like the edge rip, which he's way way better at than he should be. But, I mean, it's a swim move, though. Is a swim move more effective on the outside or the inside? Uh, it's more of an inside move because you can't really swim after you take three steps. Like it's kind of an immediate thing because you're already close. You're already really, it's more of like a move in tight quarters because if you do it on the edge, but that swim, you're the tackle is more of a chance to recover because you have more space between the two. Have you ever seen a better swim move than JJ Watts? Name two players. <laughs> uh, Michael Phelps and, uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Mark Davis. Right? Right. So if J.J. I mean, I'm almost 50 years old now, believe it or not. I'm almost 50. I've never seen a better swim move than J.J. Watts. So <laughs> why isn't he playing on the inside using his best tool, using his best weapon? Even if you're to tell the guy, this is like, this is like in the days when, when the catchers would tell the hitters that Nolan Ryan's going to throw his fastball. I mean, they would, they would tell the hitters that just, just to show them up. Even if you're to tell the guard facing against uh, J.J. Watt, look, he's going to do the swim move. You just try to stop it. Like, Watt's still going to be successful, so why put him outside? So why do we vetch about that quite a bit? It's because it's just such an obvious thing. Legendary swim move, don't line him up in, a, like, a nine-wide technique, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, again, like, I'm okay with the nine-wide technique when he's going against Wheeler, but whenever they're playing – I don't know. Whenever they play the Cowboys and get Tyron Smith there, um, maybe don't play him on the left tackle. You know, put him against Connor Williams. Like, find your best matchup and let Watt work from there. I think that's the best way to kind of use him. And I'm just, like, I'm just super happy that he's back and he's healthy and he's playing well because I really miss watching him play football. Uh, let's go through, I guess, these few listener questions, and then we'll talk about the, Gold, the Colts game briefly, and we'll kind of go from there. Whenever we have these kind of podcasts after – bad losses like this, it becomes a lot of like bigger picture thinking and talking about O'Brien and uh, we spend you know, 25 minutes, you know, with the you know, airing out all of our grievances and stuff. And it's like pretty much like marriage counseling and then we feel a lot better and then we can actually have a good time. So uh, well, the first uh, reader question I have is from actually a friend of mine named Sam and BFT said, what will be the first game the Texans will win this season? Oh God, really? That's your question for me? Yeah, that's the question. Oh, um, they play I mean, the Colts the problem... this week, the Cowboys the week after, the Bills after that, then the Jaguars, Dolphins, Broncos. The problem is it should be like the Colts. We should romp the Colts. I mean, we should. The Colts are trash. I don't – look, I still don't care what anybody says. The Colts are trash. Um. 
I, I think we might have to wait until we play the Bills. I don't care what the Bills did on Sunday against the Vikings. I don't care what anybody says about Josh Allen right now. The league is going to adjust, and Josh Allen's going to go back to doing Allen things. So I, I think we might wind up actually having to wait for the Bills. I just I have no faith in this team to to let me let me take a step back from this a little bit. The Houston Texans historically under Bill O'Brien have really done nothing but punch down. They've only been able to beat not only teams that are kind of below our threshold, but are just straight out poor football teams. The Colts kind of qualify for that, even though they're not really showing that this year. So it kind of makes me want to say, no, that's not going to be the game. The Buffalo Bills are, they're, they're one of the worst football teams I've ever seen, especially on paper. So I think we're going to have to wait for that because they're the only type of team Bill O'Brien can consistently beat are the worst teams in the league. They could beat the BSS when they're two and fourteen, and the Glitter Kitties when they're two and fourteen, and the Cincinnati Bengals when they're eleven and five. That's who we beat. So that's I think we wait for the Bills, Matt. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I feel the same way too. I think uh, I'm tired of picking the Texans to win these games, like last week, like the Titans game, and have them lose as well too. And like. I don't know, the Colts, like, their front seven has been spicy this year. And, uh, yeah, we can talk more about them in a second, but I would say the Bills as well. The next question we have here is from Meigs. He had two questions. The first one is, what's the big-picture strategy going forward, both around the current core, do a Brown-style tank and rebuild, uh, both without O'Brien, I assume? Uh, yeah, so Bill O'Brien's got to be the first cog to go. We have to get somebody who's going to take advantage of uh, Deshaun Watson. I've been saying it for a while now. Matt LaFleur is my number one with the bullet, the offensive coordinator for the Titans. He's part of the uh, Shanahan coaching tree. Shanahan's part of the Kubiak coaching tree. Look, I, I think that that is where we really need to go. Focus on a guy who knows how to call an offense. You can go out and get good defensive guys. Look, I would keep Romeo Cannell a second if I'm Matt LaFleur. Hey, I'm going to give you the 70-year-old guy who still knows how to run a defense as long as he's got the personnel, like they're not all old and decrepit like me. But put LaFleur in charge of that offense, I think you're going to see beautiful things happen. Um, do I burn this team down? I absolutely do not burn this team down. Um, at the rate we're going, we're going to have um, – well, at the rate Seattle's going, I'm sorry – we might have a, we're going to have several good draft picks this year. We need to redo our secondary to a certain degree. Cornerbacks, clearly a tackle would not help or would not hurt. But, look, as poor as the offensive line has been, let's go back to what Big Matt was talking about earlier. You put Davenport at left tackle, put Rankin at right tackle, let the dudes play what really the positions they are built to play and let's see what happens because the offensive line is going to get better. I really, I'm very, very confident in that. So I don't think the offensive line is going to be a nightmare by the end of the season, but we definitely need help in the secondary. We could use another weapon or two offensively, especially at tight end. There is a good solid core here. It's not like we're talking about the Browns where they had nothing at most positions for several years, aside from Joe Thomas. There is a really tight core here. You get good coaching. Look, even I thought this team had the potential to go 12-4 and this year. Even I did. So there's too much of a core here to kind of whisk it away, Matt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that I was, agree. That was really ranty. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of rants. Uh, I bet we've just been playing like – like Pat, like we're playing like a campaign of a single player video game, and we're just kind of like sitting on the couch, passing the controller back and forth after levels. 
more so than conversation. Uh, and which is which is kind of how it happens whenever y'all riled up after kind of some of these things. But no, I agree with you completely. This team, this isn't a talent issue with this team right now. Like everything we're witnessing, like this isn't. There's nothing wrong with the talent here. You're not going to be good at everything with the, with the way the salary cap is set up. Uh, the Texans didn't have you know, any draft capital last year because of the decisions that they made as well, too. You name when they traded for Watson, and also the name redacted trade was terrible. It's always been terrible. Uh, it continues to be terrible. And so, like, moving forward, like, you don't – and they're also, like, they've hit on their first-round pick. So, you know, the talent's here. The issues here is, co- is coaching. The Texans are 0-3 because of O'Brien. They're 0-3 because of coaching specifically. So, I, I wouldn't say that you would uh, burn everything and you down trade people for picks and uh, strip everything with spare parts and building on Watson uh, at all. I think you would just kind – of, I would fire O'Brien today, get a different head coach because 0-3, the playoffs are kind of over. See what you have, what you could have in Cronell or whatever. Maybe you win five games, you have a high draft pick next year, and they can already already start your new head coaching search and think about that. Because right now, that's that's what's holding this team back. It's not a big talent thing, uh, and you know, sure, like, but there's positions that can be filled and things can get better. But they have a ton of cap space already. They're going to have a ton of draft capital next year. So like the, the opportunity is already there for them to be another good team again next year, even if it hasn't happened this year. Well said. And then the last listener question we had was from uh, our good friend, Upriya Texan. Uh, if you missed it, he called Bill O'Brien Brain from Pinky and the Brain. And Brain's the, the rat with the big old head and the big brain who's very mean. And there's Pinky who's, you know, very dumb and silly. But then there's also like those conspiracy theories out there that Pinky's actually the smart one and Brain's the really dumb one. And I haven't seen the show since I was, you know, seven years old as a latchkey kid waiting for you, my mother to come home. So I can't really speak exactly what it is. Uh, but UT asked BFD, if Bill O'Brien was to try to take over the world, how, what would his plan be? And how do you think it would be thwarted? First uprooted first when like whenever we start our day and the kids ask and they are so well-trained and if either kid ever asks, what are we doing today? My wife and I look at each other like completely uh, frustrated, perplexed because we say the same thing. We're going to try to take over the world. And so for you to insult me like that because I'm old and wait, what are we talking about? (laughs) Anyway. um, Yes. So I know pinky in the brain. Thank you, UT. Hugs. So how would how would Brain O'Brain try to take over the world? <laughs> God, <laughs> he would put garlic powder on people's food because he thinks they'd knock them out. There we go. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Come out. I didn't even say that correctly. That's it. Here comes the yeah. whiskey, everybody. <laughs> I like that. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I never understood that whenever people make jokes like why people don't know how to season their food because I've never had that experience before. And then, like, watching Bill O'Brien for these last four years, like, uh, I, I kind of get it now. I feel like everything's just, you know, mayonnaise and cheese and bread with him. But I don't, I don't really have anything to add to your garlic powder thing. So let's talk about this Sunday's game. The Texans are playing the Colts. The Colts are currently 1-2. and two. They lost uh, a close game to the Bengals. Then they beat the Washington football team. Um, 
by like a really like kind of strange defensive effort where Alex Smith refused to throw the ball the outside all and they tackled really well. And they almost beat the Eagles last year, but Derek Barnett made like a, a, a game saving, you know, Super Bowl esque uh, sack to, to win the game in it. So that's what they're up against this week. Now I've watched all three of those Colts games. I caught back up on football. I'm a football guy again. Uh, what do you think about Andrew Luck? Do you think he's back? How has he looked to you so far? Uh, what really, if, if you're a Colts fan, and you shouldn't be, uh, if you're a Colts fan and you see that 5.3 yards per attempt that he's, he's throwing up there versus his career 7.1, you really have to ask yourself, is Andrew Luck really healthy? And I don't think the answer is yes, Big Matt. I, I just don't. So I – from what I've seen, it's just throwing a lot of short passes, getting rid of it. Yes. I I get that part of it. He just doesn't want to get hit anymore. He's times already this year. I guess that's not too gross, but I just don't think Andrew Luck is back. And if Andrew Luck isn't back, then I don't see how the Colts are even remotely decent. I don't care what their defense has done so far this year. I just, I hate this team. I hate the talent or the (laughs) lack of talent they've got on this team. Like, even if you look at their, um, Away, it's just 12th as well as they've played. I think that's going to go back. I don't know. I, I hate this team, Big Matt. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think you're underselling their defense after I watched them. I was really like, I've been really kind of strangely impressed by their defense considering they didn't really put any money at all into this past year. And Ballard's just been like making mid round draft picks and kind of adding pieces here and there. Uh, but going back to luck. So, yeah, Luck has a yards per attempt of 5.3 right now, which I really had no idea after watching all of his games even. Do you know he's better than one quarterback? One quarterback is 32nd in football. Do you know which quarterback has a worse, worse yards per attempt than Andrew Luck? Well, it ain't Ryan Fitzpatrick. That's for dad, I'm sure. Yeah, he's third at 11.1. God, he just chunks the ball downfield. Isn't he fun to watch? <laughs> Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm going to never fully like him because of 2014. And, uh, but, yeah, he's been incredible this year. Um, wow. Taylor? No, Taylor is 28th at 5.5. Sam Bradford at 5.0. That's the only ah, quarterback Andrew Luck yeah. has attempted more yards per attempt than. And, I mean, like watching him, like, it, I get, it's starting to click now because I was watching him and I was really surprised by just like lack of arm strength with him. I mean, he's just floating passes up. Like it, it looks like Case Kim deep balls when he's throwing seven yard out passes. Uh, and it's really kind of like super weird too watching him play because the intelligence is there. The pocket mobility is there. The pocket awareness is there. The touch is there. The accuracy there, but the arm strength isn't there whatsoever. And so it's kind of like a really interesting, like, quarterback case study as well, too, especially when we talk about the draft. You're like, well, this guy's on the best arm, but he can do this, this, and this, and this. And it's like a Teddy Bridgewater thing, you know? Like, Bridgewater's not because he was skinny. His arm's not that good, but he's so good at all these different things. And I that other thing, that arm strength thing does matter. It's important. And Luck doesn't have any arm strength at all right now. And it's just, like, it's super weird to see. It's like the football is like a, a balloon you got from Supercuts that you've blown up and you're trying to throw it, you know, 15 yards, and he just can't do it. And uh, it's weird. It's really eerie. But, like, everything else is there. And I think the concern is if you're the Colts, like, is this something that he's re- re- rehabilitating from and will get better at? Or is this just kind of going to be luck forever? 
And even that Eagles game, they benched him and brought Jacoby Brissett in to throw the Hail Mary because Luck can't throw the football 45 yards all anymore. So they bring in, you know, Brissett just to throw the last pass because Luck can't get the ball to the end zone from, you know, 45, 50 yards at all, which is just the, it's just so strange. Yeah. And that's, when I saw that happen, I was blown away. That tells me everything I need to know. And what, if you're, I'm going to, okay. So we've talked about like ACL tears that, you know, when you get them fixed, normally it should be stronger because the ACL has been had a little more tear. Then you put a new thing in there and it's going to be stronger. The shoulder doesn't work like that. The shoulder really, really doesn't work like that. And after drunky hit me and I had my shoulder surgery and here I am five years post shoulder surgery my shoulder's still freaking weak, right? It's not something that just gets stronger. It's really a lot harder to rehab that kind of injury. That's why uh, pitchers, whenever they get the shoulder injuries, they have a tendency to not be so swell afterward. It's just with the body part, how it reacts to injury. And so mm-hmm. if you're looking at Andrew Lux, had this really hard time with his shoulder that he had to sit out so long, um, you know, there's probably reasons for that. And I don't know if he's ever going to be Andrew Luck again. I, this is just, it's so rare that something like that fixes itself. I mean, look at the NFL quarterbacks. The only one I can think of that's had major shoulder surgery and come back to be very successful is Drew Brees. I mean, these, yeah. these are the sorts of injuries that you count on one hand that people come back successfully from. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, yeah. It's, it's super weird. The, the only good thing that's kind of come from Andrew Luck's inability to throw the ball with any you know, muster at all is that it constantly to always underthrown throws downfield. And so T.Y. Hilton drew like three defensive pass interference totally to that game because he would stop, come back to the ball, and the defensive backs are you know, running to keep up with him, and then he stops right in front of them, and they get like 35 free yards. So that's the only good thing that's come out of it. Uh, but other than that, like it just, it's really weird. And going back to Hilton, Hilton has historically killed Houston – in his career, he has 63 catches on 104 targets for 1,131 yards, which comes up to 17.95 yards a catch and also nine touchdowns. So are you worried about that combination, or does Lux's shoulder uh, not really concern you? And also, how are you expecting they're going to cover Hilton? Is it going to be a lot of man coverage against Kareem Jackson, Jonathan Joseph? Uh, how do you think they're going to go about that matchup? Okay. All you have to do for me, if you're, if you're the Colts, and if you know anything about the foosballs and you just watched and saw what uh, putting Beckham in the slot with Kareem Jackson covering him and saw what Jack or what Beckham could do to Kareem Jackson, just on a simple slant, I'm just lining up Hilton in, in the slot all day. And, and just look, even Andrew Luck can throw the ball 15 yards. So that to me is the matchup to watch is where they're going to line up Hilton, what they're going to do to Kareem Jackson, what they're going to do to anybody who's covering Hilton. Cause we're going to, even if he's in the slot, you're going to have to bracket the dude because he's so fast, nobody on the team can keep with him. Mm-hmm. And also, like, Kareem Jackson's bad turning around for the ball also. And uh, I didn't throw it by five yards, but you're going to get, like, a free, like, you know, 35 yards because that's as far as Luck can throw the ball right now as well, too. Um, so defensively, they kept Carson Wentz. You know, he just came back to 20 points. They held Washington to nine points the week before. I, don't, I haven't looked at the, the overall numbers. I haven't checked out the DVOA numbers yet because, you know, looking at yards and, and points, points is better than yards, but yards is a bad way to look at a, a performance of a team overall like that. Uh, but I, I do like this defense. Like Darius Leonard's a, a really good blitzer. 
He's a playmaker. He's a second-round pick that they have from South Carolina State. Jabal Sheard is the most underrated pass rusher in football. Mm-hmm. Marcus Hunt has come out of nowhere and turns like this, like, like Kyle Vandenbosch. He's been spectacular to start the season. Al Woods has been a really great run defender. The other linebacker they have playing next to Leonard in their nickel situations, he's been making plays as well, too. And they don't really have any cornerback talent, but, like, Malik Hooker is, I think is going to has the potential to be like an Earl Thomas level, like pass defender. He's never going to be able to tackle that Thomas was, and like the hitter that Thomas was. But he has that same sort of range where he can just make some absurd plays to influence you know any deep pass you know at all available. And their strong safety gather it has been you know atrocious. But like their front seven's been surprisingly spunky. You know Hooker is good. They're hard to throw downfield on, and the outside is the best place to 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 beat them up. But like. I mean, they've been really surprising, especially with their stunts uh, and their defensive line, their pass rush. Like, I've been, like, super impressed. And I thought this was going to be a team that was going to give up, you know, 28, 30, you know, 28 points a game or so. And they've been far away from that. Like, they've, you know, locked down uh, Washington. They played, you know, Gray against Philadelphia last week, too. No. No, not buying. Sorry, Matt. All right. <laughs> well, you're, you'll, you'll buy maybe after this week. But they've been good. I mean, I don't know if you've watched him really yet at all, but they've been good. Like, they would have beat Indy, but Carson Wentz drew one of those, like, really weak uh, roughing the passer calls on fourth and five. They gave him an automatic first down. Otherwise, the Eagles probably would have lost that game. Wow. Yeah, no, I did not get to watch that game. I was away for uh... – yeah, that's the one thing about Sunday I should actually, you know, talk about out loud is I really enjoyed seeing uh, ballet off. Uh, the Firebird a lot more than I watched like uh, watching the Houston Texans. <laughs> I mean, again, I I love the ballet. I mean, I absolutely do. I think it's the ultimate in in uh, athleticism. But man, watching the Texans play and watching the fantastic performers at Austin Ballet, not even in comparison right now. <laughs> are you going back to the ballet this Sunday? Or are you gonna watch this game? Oh no, it, it was a one weekend thing. But uh, if I have I to it. miss another, yeah, yeah, so. It's hard on that's, the dancers. Whenever they come out with the the, slot, the DVD for the end of the 2017, 2018 season, they should say Houston Texans, you should went to the ballet instead. But uh, yeah, like I've watched, yeah the Colts, the Colts defense has been really surprised. They're still kind of taken aback by it, uh, especially Marcus Hunt. Like I can't get over as good as he's been to start this year as well too. So what's your prediction for this one? Who do you have winning this game? Do you think the Texans are going to snap? <laughs> this losing streak, or is it going to keep going and going and going? Oh, stop it, Matt. I'm already dead inside. <laughs> oh, my God. This – I've never – again, I'm almost 50 years old, y'all. I've been around. I've been watching Houston football since I was, like, five. I've never seen a team as perplexing as the current Texan squad. And there's a couple of reasons for that. We know the reasons. We know that Bill O'Brien is a terrible head coach. Um, we know that the defensive backs are old and slow. This is a really, really hard team to, to predict. This is going to be one of the few times I, I don't, I, I get the home road thing and I don't always kind of go against that just because of the home road thing, but I'm going to take, the Colts um, on this game, I'm going to take them 24 to 16. And that's three field goals and one touchdown by the Texans. 
<laughs> I just want to make that very clear that that's going to be the ratio there. Yeah, why not four field goals and two safeties instead? I thought about that. And that might be more realistic. I mean, it is Bill O'Brien. I mean, good gosh. I mean, you want him to put what on his toast? <laughs> yeah, I have Indy winning 23-20. Uh, the Texans have lost three one-possession games to start this year. Uh, they're Actually, their expected win-loss record is 1.1 to 1.9 based off their point differential. So, I mean, they, they have been unlucky, but they've also been the worst coach football team I've watched this year. And, like, also, I've watched, I think, all the condensed games from Sunday except for three uh, right now. And, like, just watching what Carolina's done with their injuries to the offensive line uh, and, like, without, like, without nearly as much talent as Houston has on theirs, and it's just unbelievable just the difference in what they get out of theirs. To see what Jacksonville has done with, uh, with Allen as their left tackle after losing Cam Robinson has been great as well, too. Like, all these teams have dealt with offensive line injuries, but only Houston can put a confident offensive line together, even with everybody healthy. But anyways, I mean, this team is just poorly coached. I do really like the Colts' defense, which is – like, I like them as far as I'm surprised that they're mediocre. Like, I'm surprised that they're, like, the 16th best defense in football because I thought they are going to be, like, the 30th best. Um, Andrew Luck is still super smart. I think he can do just enough. And I think Bill O'Brien will continue to hold the offense back. So I have the Colts winning 23-20. And it's also one of those things, too, like I'm not expecting Houston to win a game this year until it actually happens because right now I'm unsure if that's even a possibility out in this uh, this infinite reality we live in. I'm looking at the rest of UT's questions that he's posted. And, I mean, seriously, the hateful Nate's responses, don't post on your own. Shiza immediately makes you look small, Maude. I just don't even – yeah. Sometimes people just shouldn't post on the blog. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, arguing, arguing about something online is never a very enjoyable experience. But making friends well, online and talks online is, is okay sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's just really funny that the responses are so just freaking poor. It's just hilarious. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, that's what we have for this show tonight. Uh, if you're listening live, thank you for listening live. If you're listening recorded, cool. I think there may be some changes happening in the podcast in the next you know, week or two as far as recording live or not and uh, and how SB Nation's doing some things. So we'll probably have to type a post maybe in a week or two once all that gets finalized and sorted out. And it won't change this show or what we're doing. It's still going to be here. Uh, and we'll still be doing this show on Tuesday nights and that sort of thing. But uh, anyways, enjoy – trying to watch this game on Sunday. Hopefully you have fun doing it. Hopefully some interesting things happen. Hopefully like O'Brien actually runs a competent enough offense. But uh, anyway, same folks in the show. My name is not Weston. Thank you for uh, talking to me tonight, BFT. I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seems Smart. It Seems Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seem smart at the time. Those things might include 
doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain. Or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission. Or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart. (laughs) 